and the risen Savior by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at, we're wrapping up, we've got this week and then next week on our um, series through the, uh, through the statement of faith, that th these things that we believe as a church. Uh, and we're going to look at something uh, this morning uh, on the return of Christ. And uh, something we need to look at, not just because the Bible teaches it, but because the Bible teaches it as one of the central sources of encouragement and strength uh, for Christians who are in rough days. Has anybody, raise your hand if somebody's um, investments have been suffering a bit. <laughs> and, uh, raise your hand if you have been out of a job at any point in the last couple of years. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, raise your hand if you have, in the last few years of your life, ever been challenged or mocked uh, because of your testimony about Christ, whether at work or with a friend. Or that happened. All right. Uh, the return of Christ is about encouragement, and it's about exhortation to keep going because Jesus is coming. And I, I, I think that. A lot of times Christians really don't think as much about the return of Christ as we really should. And that generally speaking, I would say that Christians, even, even God-fearing, evangelical, Bible-believing, Bible-preaching Christians, a lot of times fall into one of two categories. They, they either fall into what I call hopeful doubters or practical irrelevance. And what I mean by that is that the hopeful doubters believe, but they believe without much conviction. And they, 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 they think of it like this. Well, you know, it's been a really long time since about 30 A.D. And so the idea when someone stands up and tells to them, Jesus is coming back and perhaps today. It's almost like a scene out of that old 1940s era absurdist play, Waiting for Godot. I doubt very many of you have seen it. But it's a, and it's not one I'd recommend, by the way. It's a play in which for two solid acts, two guys sit on a bench and they talk. And nothing happens for four hours. Nothing happens. And they're waiting for this person called Godot. And they don't know when he's going to be there or whether or not he's going to show up. They don't even necessarily know what he looks like, but they know that eventually, somewhere, sometime, he's coming. And the play closes with him never arriving. And the play is written, I think, explicitly as a slap against Christians who believe that Jesus is coming, though they do not know what he looks like, though they do not have any idea when. And it's supposed to reinforce this idea that, well, aren't these two men foolish and aren't Christians foolish for waiting for Jesus? I mean, after all, it's been 2,000 years. And a whole lot of Christians, I think, kind of feel that. And so a lot of times when you hear about uh, or read about the return of Christ in the scriptures, you go, yes, yes, I know Jesus is coming. And I believe that. 
but I'm not really expecting him today because it's been a long time. Other people fit in the category of what I call practical irrelevance. They know that the Bible teaches that Jesus is coming back, and they believe that, but they're not really all that interested in the details. Uh, they don't find the fact of Jesus' return all that compelling or all that valuable for their life today. They're the sort of people who say, you know, I'm a pan-millennialist. I believe it'll all pan out in the end one way or the other, and it doesn't really matter. And why does it not matter? Because it doesn't affect their life in any way, either way they understand it. And so they, don't, they think that the Bible teaches this, but it's not a doctrine that, that really matters or carries any real significance. And so, yes, we hold to it. Yes, we put it in our statement of faith, but it doesn't really change my life in any real way on a day-to-day -day basis. And what I would like to show you today is not only that according to the Scriptures, Christ's return is a certainty, but it's also something that matters for our lives today. Not tomorrow, not somewhere in the sweet by and by, but now. And that it ought to change and impact how we live our life today and tomorrow, and next week, and until the Lord returns. That the fact that Jesus is returning ought to be transformative. And if it's not, it may be because we don't understand it properly and haven't, under, and haven't studied it enough to really see what the Bible is saying about it. So if you've got your Bibles, this is exciting for me. I've never taught on this, ever. Uh, I have never preached from this book that we're going to look at today. So this, is, this will be a learning experience for everybody, all right? Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. We're going to look the rest of chapter 4, and then we're going to jump into chapter 5 a little later. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, there are a few things you need to notice in this passage to understand it rightly. Uh, first, the term fallen asleep fallen asleep, or those who are asleep in the Lord, is the Pauline term for dying as a Christian. Because a Christian's death is not the same as a non-Christian's death. If you read elsewhere, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says, to be absent from the body, that is to die as a Christian, is to be face to face with the Lord. So in other words, the part of you that sleeps is your body. If you are a Christian and your spirit, the immaterial part of you 
that makes up makes you a human being the part that makes you you that part of you goes immediately into the presence of the Lord Almighty and you are at the Lord's side until the day of the coming of the Lord and the resurrection it says we don't want you to be unaware of what happens to those who fall asleep in Jesus uh, a Christian's death is totally unlike a non-Christian death. So this, this isn't soul sleep, because your soul does not sleep. It goes into the presence of the Lord. Uh, but it is the sleep of death of your body in, while your body waits for the resurrection of the dead. And sleep is also in contrast to real death. Christians do not experience real death. Real death is characterized by, first of all, the first death, the separation of your spirit from your body. The, and then non-Christians also experience what is called in the Bible the second death, which is separation from God for all eternity in hell. So for a non-Christian to die and a Christian to die is not anything like the same experience. And because a Christian's death is not the kind that lasts forever, shut out from the presence of God and the majesty of his power. Amen? To be a Christian and to die is to experience promotion day and to go into the presence of God. And so another thing you need to see is that Paul is giving here uh, on the basis of his own apostolic authority and the revelation of God a teaching that he received from Jesus directly. In other words, something that is not taught elsewhere in the Scriptures. So there's nowhere else you can turn to where Jesus taught about this or somebody else taught about this. No, Paul says, I got this by revelation from Jesus directly. Uh, one of the things that you need to know is that that was part of the role of the apostles. Jesus, in fact, predicted that that's what would happen. He said that, there would not, they would not only be his witnesses of what had happened to him and th that they would understand the scriptures by the power of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit came, but that they would also teach what came later. And so as an example, you see Luke saying in the book of Luke at the beginning, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote all that Jesus began to do and teach, implying this is the book about what Jesus continued to do and to teach. And how did he continue to act and to teach? Through the apostles. And God spoke through the apostles who were prophets, who were the authoritative spokespersons of God. And Paul says, this is part of that revelation that I was given. And look at what he says. We don't grieve like unbelievers. Why? Because unbelievers have no confidence, no confidence, and they can have no confidence that the life they will experience after death is better than the one they have right now. And wouldn't that be disappointing? If this is as good as it is ever going to be. That, you know, let's say you get to be 28 years old, and, you know, you're right about basically your physical peak right then. And after that, it's all downhill. Okay? <laughs> Um, it's all downhill, okay? I know this. I am 38. I ran 750 miles in the last year. I was finishing up mile 751 and blew out my knee this last week on my left leg, okay? 
uh, you start to fall apart. You start to creak when you get up in the morning at a certain age, right? And as someone said, you know, you know you're getting old because everything hurts and what doesn't hurt doesn't work, <laughs> right? Um, and wouldn't it be disappointing and frustrating if this life is as good as it gets, you know, and you start, you start being like a, that character in a Bruce Springsteen song from back in my uh, younger days, Glory Days, right? They pass you by, Glory Days, right? <laughs> in the blink of a young girl's eye, Glory Days, right? Oh, yeah, okay. And your Glory Days is all you've got to look back on for eternity. And so when a non-Christian dies... If you go to funerals, and I go to a lot of them, I've done a lot of them as a pastor, and I spend a lot of time at them. And one thing you will notice if you go to a non-Christian funeral versus a Christian funeral is the kind of grief that people experience. Because if you go to a Christian funeral, if your pastor has any sense, what he will say to you is this, this person is not here. This person's body is here, but they are in the presence of God in glory and pain-free without a tear, without, without a difficulty, where they will no longer experience death. They will be in the presence of God for all eternity. Praise God. Hallelujah. Amen. Okay? And you will celebrate the fact that one day you will be not only also with the Lord if you are a believer, but that you will also get the privilege of seeing them again. And so you don't grieve like a non-Christian who doesn't know where this person is or where they themselves will be or whether they will ever see them again or whether the life that they are experiencing is better than what they have been experiencing up to then. And so Paul says we don't grieve like, there's, like other people who have no hope. Why? We have hope. And we are not simply looking around for somebody to give us some sort of, well, assurance based on, well, they, you know, they were a good person. No, we know where we're going. And we know where Christians who have fallen asleep wind up. And so we don't grieve in the same way. Yes, we are sad. Yes, tears are appropriate. Yes, if you bury your spouse or your father or mother or brother or sister or friend, you're going to grieve as you should, but not like a non-Christian because you know that one day on the great getting up morning, as the old gospel song goes, we are going to be with Jesus and we're going to be with them also. And Paul says that our hope in death is based on the fact that we believe Jesus died and, was ro and rose again. Those two events are the center and the pivot of the Christian faith. They are the thing around which everything else in the Christian life turns. And our hope for eternity is based on Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, we believe that Jesus not only died, which is a historical fact. You can trace it back. You can find other people, even outside the Bible, even non-Christians, who will certify to the fact that Jesus was, in fact, crucified under Pontius Pilate. And you can also find historical evidence that Jesus was, in fact, raised from the dead. And so our belief is not based on just sort of esoteric hope, but based on historical reality that was verifiable by people who did not have any interest in the outcome. 
And he says, we believe that Jesus died and was raised again. And in Paul's day, a lot of people were worried because they began to see that the first generation of Christians that had passed away uh, had already died and Jesus hadn't come back yet. And they're going, what happened to these guys, Paul? What about people who've already died? Paul says, look, you need to understand this for certain. No one who believes in Jesus' death and resurrection on their behalf will miss out on the resurrection and being with Jesus for eternity. And in fact, Paul says here in this passage that Jesus' return is going to be impossible for anybody to miss. Even if as a non-Christian, it's going to be hard to miss that Jesus has come back. How do we know? Because Jesus is going to enter our world like a king. If you've ever watched, and I love to watch some of this stuff on TV, uh, you know, like when they had the royal wedding and all that. I love all the pomp and circumstance and the crowns and thrones and all that. I think that's just super cool. I wouldn't want to actually live under a king that actually had any authority other than Jesus. But it's really neat to watch some of the pageantry associated with it, right? And when a king comes in, or even when the president of the United States comes in, you know, they have presenting President and Mrs. Barack Obama, you know, da da da, and and uh, you know, hail to the chief plays, right? And they have the kind of the grand entrance. Well, when God shows up, it's a little bit different, because what happens when God shows up is that an archangel screams, "Here comes the living God," and a trumpet blows, and everybody on earth can hear it. Now I don't know what kind of trumpet that is, but apparently it's loud, (laughs) all right? And I don't know how loud an archangel can shout, but apparently, again, they've got a big voice. And then it says, then the Lord himself will return and the dead in Christ will rise. And Jesus will descend in the clouds, and he will gather his people. And according to the scriptures here, those who have died will receive their resurrection bodies first. They've paid their dues already. So they get their resurrection body first, and their bodies, in whatever state they are, are reconstituted and and resurrected and pulled together and transformed into a new body like Jesus' heavenly body. You know, Jesus, after his resurrection, was able to do some fairly unusual things with his new body after his post-resurrection body. Uh, He was able to do things like appear and disappear whenever he wanted. He was able to eat, but he didn't have to. He was able to pass through walls uh, without using the door. He could just appear in the room. Now, I don't know that we'll necessarily, as Uh, possessors of a resurrection body be able to do that. But I do know that our body will be a new kind of body, unlike this one, that won't have gimpy knees and Crohn's disease and balding hair and, you know, soggy around the middle and all that, Uh, like mine, okay? Uh, You will have a new body that will be transformed and won't decay, won't creak. Uh, It will live forever, And you will inhabit it forever. Because, see, a a human being is designed to be a body and a spirit. 
to be, have a body like the animals, but to be a spirit being like the angels. And God put them both together and called it human beings and made us in his image. And we are designed to live as embodied spirits for eternity. Like Jesus. And so the dead who, the, the dead who believe in Christ, they, their spirit and their, their spirit comes with Jesus and their body is reunited there and transformed. And then in an instant later, those of us who are still alive when the Lord returns will have our bodies transformed. Now, personally, I'm hoping for that. I'm hoping that I'm still alive on the earth when the Lord returns. Or either that he's got another chariot to take me up to heaven in like Elijah. I think that would also be cool, you know, because honestly, I'm like Woody Allen when it comes to death. I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And, um, and you know, but regardless, if the Lord takes me through death or the Lord calls me home at the, at the, at the last day, at the return of Christ, either way, I'm good with it. Because either way, I'll be with the Lord and with those who love Jesus for eternity. And, and I believe that this event that Paul describes here in chapter 4 is what is called the rapture of the church, which is an event distinct from the second coming of the Lord when Jesus returns to the earth. Uh, I believe the rapture will take place before the events described in Revelation chapter 4 through 19. Uh, that are called the Great Tribulation. Uh, Pastor Jim and a lot of other godly uh, people, both within our denomination as well as outside it, believe that the rapture and the second coming are the same event, that Jesus meets us in the clouds and then returns to earth immediately. I believe he meets us in the clouds, carries us to heaven, and then the tribulation begins. Now, that makes me a pre-tribulational pre-millennial person, okay? You can be either one within our our denomination or our church. They're both orthodox. They're both God-honoring. They can both be defended biblically. Uh, Pastor Jim would say, no, Jesus returns at the end of the tribulation, uh, which we both agree on, uh, and the rapture and and the second coming are the same event, and then immediately following that, is the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of, G- of King Jesus on earth, uh, which is followed by the last judgment and the eternal state. Okay, that's, that's where we are. Uh, one th- I want to make one thing very clear. Whichever one you are, whether you believe like me that the rapture will precede the tribulation at the end of which Jesus will return and establish his kingdom, or you believe that the church will go through the tribulation, Jesus will return and establish his kingdom. One thing is very, very clear based on the scriptures, that Jesus' return and his millennial kingdom are not up for debate biblically. Biblically speaking, these two events are going to happen. They are a certainty. And more than that, our belief in these events And in the fact that they are coming has real practical significance. And part of that practical significance is our confidence and hope in the face of death. Really and truly, the best thing that can happen to me, apart from that Jesus would return and take me to heaven, 
is that I would die. Why? Because to die is to be present with the Lord. And so Paul says, when he's asked this question in Philippians, he says, I don't know which to choose. Because to be absent from the body is to be face to face with the Lord. To die is Christ and to live is gain. I can experience more reward and live more faithfully before God right now, or I can die and be with him right now. Which should I choose? I don't know. And I'm kind of with him on that. I don't know which would be better. It's better for my family, better for the church that I remain and keep doing what I'm doing, but it'd be better for me to go be with Jesus. Because that's the ultimate goal, is to be with Jesus. And no matter, and, and our confidence in the face of death because we believe in Jesus and we will receive the resurrection tells us that no matter how much the wheels of our life fall off, no matter how bad our diseases get, no matter how hard persecution becomes, no matter how many of us suffer martyrdom, no matter how many friends we lose or family members that disown us because of our testimony about Jesus, no matter what happens, Jesus is coming for us and will raise us up to be with him forever, no matter what happens. So the worst thing that somebody can do to you is still the best thing. You suffer martyrdom because you proclaimed your faith to the wrong people who were not interested in hearing how Jesus had come to save them from sin. And you get killed, boiled in oil by some cannibal tribe, or your head chopped off, or what have you. Somebody does the worst they can do to you. It's still the best thing, because you still go and be with Jesus. And so it ought to give us tremendous confidence, not only in the face of death, but in the face of everything that we experience in life. Hey, guess what? You lost your job today. Oh, well, I guess I don't know what we're going to eat, but if we starve to death, we're going to go and be with Jesus. Your spouse divorced you. Well, that stinks. However, at the end of my life, I go to be with Jesus, and he wipes away every tear. No matter what happens, we face life with confidence and hope because our ultimate hope is in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, encourage one another with these words. And I hope you find it encouraging, because it's meant to be encouraging that no matter what happens, no matter what, no matter how bad life gets, and it can get bad, amen? Anybody who's ever been through cancer treatment with somebody they love and care about or been through it themselves will tell you life can get bad. It can feel like you have moved into the basement of an outhouse. I'm serious. It can feel that way. But you know what? At the end of the day, Jesus is coming back for me and for you also. And there are some additional implications, and Paul wants to give them to us here in what I've called, in the meantime, um, chapter 5, verse 1 to 11. 
Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Well, according to these verses, what's Paul say we are to be busy doing in the meantime? I want to give you four things that Paul tells us in these 11 verses that we're to do in the meantime. Number one, don't predict... Write this down. Don't make predictions on when Jesus is coming. Now, I'm serious. If, if you get yourself a radio show and get some billboards out around the country telling everybody when Jesus is coming, I'm going to come up to you and I'm going to poke you in the eye. <laughs> because every single time that this comes up, I'm serious. We're going to roll around on the ground and start fighting. Because the Bible tells you not to do this. Don't make predictions about when Jesus is coming. No one, in fact, Jesus, before he left, said this, No one knows, not even the Son. In other words, Jesus doesn't know. I don't know how that works in the concept of a triune God, but Jesus says, I don't know but only the Father. So don't get hung up on trying to figure out all the times and the dates. And in fact, that is one characteristic of a cult leader, is someone who makes these predictions of the return of Jesus. The Jehovah's Witnesses have wrongly predicted the coming of Jesus at least five times since 1914. They said in 1914, oh, well, the Lord is returning this year, then again in 1918, and then several times since. Jesus is coming back. Joseph Smith, founder of the Mormons, said that Jesus would return before his death. Joe's been dead a while, and Jesus did not return. And of course, this year we've all heard Harold Camping, everybody's, you know, the media's favorite Christian, uh, say that Jesus was coming back May 21st, and that didn't happen. So then it was October 16th, and guess what? Didn't happen. You know, when I was a kid, there was a guy who came out with a book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988, and then he was, that sold like crazy. He made lots of money which, by the way, is one of the motivations behind some of this. 
a lot of times is that you can accumulate for yourself a pretty good following and make yourself a very nice life on this. But it's an indicator of someone who is a false teacher when they start making predictions. And by the way, that guy was wrong, and he came out the next year with a book, 89 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1989. <laughs> okay, hasn't been heard from since. Um, but Jesus himself taught, and Paul borrows this language, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. In other words, at a time that you do not expect him. And that time is, you, you know, if you've ever been around pregnant ladies, you know, you can see that the time is drawing near. But when's the baby coming? I don't know. Sometime, maybe today. You know, I remember with each one of our kids, we'd hit about 36 weeks. And then I would start shifting around my calendar, you know, and trying to clear my schedule of anything extraneous that might happen. And that would continue to about 42 weeks, right? <laughs> Um, why? Because you know the baby's coming sometime, and you know there's not the, that no one has ever officially been pregnant forever, although every pregnant woman feels like they have been, okay? Um, no one has ever been pregnant forever. Those of you who are expecting, there's hope for you too, <laughs> all right? Um, uh, this is going to have an end, right? And in the same way, Jesus says, look, this is not going to go on forever. It may feel like forever. It may feel like a long time. But one day the labor pains are going to come right now. And, it's, and Jesus is going to arrive. Not to be born, but to come as king. So don't set dates at a time when people are saying peace and security are here. That's when calamity will come on them like a thief in the night. If you know what night the thief is arriving, you sit up with your pit bull and your pistol. Amen? You get prepared. But a thief comes at a time when he's not expected. And Jesus says, I'm going to come at a time when I'm not expected. And I will arrive. And because we are children of the light and not of the darkness, Paul tells us, be prepared. We not only get to know in advance what is going to happen, we get the opportunity because we know it's going to happen to live in light of it. You know, just like I said, you know, when if you're a if you're a father and you know that at any time you can get that phone call, today's the day. It's time. We gotta go. Awake from your slumber, you slug. And take me to the hospital, <laughs> okay? Um, you prepare for that. You arrange your life in light of the fact that you know this event, that you're not exactly certain when it's coming, is coming. And Paul says, you're to, we're, because it's not a matter of if Jesus is returning, but when he's returning. And so Paul describes those who do not believe in the return of Christ as being asleep. As if they, and they live as if the storm is never going to happen. And those who get drunk act as if he uses them as an example of people who act as if judgment's never going to arrive for their sin. 
But a sober person, a person who knows what's coming, acts with prudence. You know, just like if you're a, um, if you live along the Gulf Coast, you know that sooner or later there's going to be a hurricane. And so you're going to keep some four by eight sheets of plywood stocked with some long screws so you can cover your windows. You're going to make sure you've got not just a a sump pump, but a backup sump pump. Keep your basement dry. You know that this is going to come sooner or later. So you get flood insurance so that you can dig out and pay for the repairs that are going to be needed. You know it's coming. And in the same way, if you know Jesus is returning, you live your life in a sober, God-honoring, prudent way. Because it's not a matter of if, but when. And when Jesus, since Jesus is coming back, you do not want to be found by him being lazy and sinful. Um, you want to found, be found by him busy, even though you're his child, carrying out what he would command you to do. I've used this example before, but it's a good one, and it speaks deeply to me. My mother would leave us as children at home with a list of activities that, she was, that we were supposed to accomplish while she was gone. And we did not know at what hour she would return, but we knew that if we had accomplished what was on that list, there would be praise, honor, glory, and blessing. And if we did not, if we were found to be lazy, shiftless, and fighting when she got back, there would not be, there would be judgment, wrath, and dishonor, <laughs> okay? Um, it would not be good, all right? And the thing is, Jesus is coming back perhaps today, so you want to live your life in light of that, like a sober person who is in control of their thoughts and knows that, look, Jesus is coming back. I want to be to be honored when he arrives. I want, I want Jesus to be proud of me and what I have been doing while he is gone. Not to go, well, God loves the prodigal. <laughs> you know, you want to be honored by Jesus for what you've been doing while he's away. And so Paul says, put on the armor of faith, hope, and love and live like you belong to God. Number three, be eager. Be eager. Be eager. Because we aren't destined for judgment, but for salvation. And so we ought to eagerly look forward to Jesus coming. And the best, the best idea, I, on, I, I, how many of you have ever been a child? Raise your hand. Okay, now, remember what Christmas was like? I remember at our house, we got to be professional package shakers, okay? I could tell you whether this is a sweater or Legos, you know? And, and mom got to where she would not even put names on the packages, just numbers. And your number changed every year. And eventually she got sophisticated enough where she put a multitude of different numbers and then had a code sheet, you know? <laughs> like 21, who's that belong to? Let me see. Mm, that's your dad's, <laughs> you know. Um, but why did we? Why were we like that? Well, one because we're nosy and snooping, but also because we are excited for Christmas to come. 
Let me tell you, when Jesus returns, it will be way better than the best Christmas you've ever had in your life. And if a little kid knows enough to be excited over Legos, shouldn't we as believers in Jesus Christ who are anticipating the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the King, look forward eagerly for the day when he comes? And shouldn't every day be one where we open our eyes and we say, are you coming today? Because I hope so. We ought to have a degree of eagerness to the fact that Jesus is coming. And lastly, last thing, be encouraging. Be encouraging. Don't predict. Be prepared. Be eager and be encouraging. Paul says, he says this twice in the space of just two little chunks. At the end of each one, he says, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Jesus is coming back. He is on the way. We don't know when. We don't know all the details that we would like to know. And believe me, as a Bible student, I would love to know all the details so I could tell everybody all the details about exactly when Jesus is coming and precisely when he's going to arrive and whatever, how everything is going to work out according to prophecy because everything is. I just don't understand it all. And so I keep studying and learning and growing and hoping to understand more and more. But I know this for sure. One day, it's going to all be very, very clear. Because Jesus is coming back in fulfillment of prophecies made over and over and over and over again. And the world is already pregnant, waiting for his return. We are in, according to the apostles, the last days. And we have been in them since the departure of Jesus on the Mount of Olives. And one day he will return again to the Mount of Olives. Just as you saw me go, I will return. And Zechariah says he's going to stand there. And Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he will resurrect your dead grandmother if she was a believer in Jesus Christ. He will raise, raise and transform you if you have passed on. He, those of us who are still here, we will be raised and transformed, and we will all be with the Lord forever. And so if you can't say anything in somebody's deep pain, what you can say is this. I know it's bad, and I know it hurts. There's a day coming when all this pain is going to be wiped away in the return of the Savior. Maybe it's today. I hope it's today. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, I pray that you who have saved us would be honored and exalted as we study your word and seek you out. And Father, knowing that your son, Jesus Christ, is coming back to claim us, Father, I pray that we would be eagerly looking forward to the day of his return, that we would be anticipating it and shaping our lives around it Refusing to make predictions, as your word has told us clearly, don't make predictions, because you're going to be wrong. 
the Father knowing that nevertheless the coming of Christ is a certainty and it provides us with hope in the face of death and disease and tragedy and sin that one day a day is coming when Jesus will come back and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and your, your very dwelling will be with us and we will live with you and you will be our God and we will be your people. And there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the former things will have passed away. And we will be in your presence where righteousness dwells forever and forever. And so, Father, I pray that no matter what anybody's going through out there, that we would all be encouraged. That Jesus loves us and loves us too much to let us continually suffer but it's coming for our rescue. Father, I pray we would anticipate it each day as we live our lives before your face. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.